You're listening to the City Lights Podcast. City Lights is a church located in Greenville, South Carolina, devoted to building family, blessing neighbors, and bringing good news to the nations. Thanks for joining us. Just joining us here. Uh, welcome. I'm glad that you're here. We're in a series that's really uh, more uh, about equipping than anything else. It's a series called Read Scripture, uh, which is Join the Story That Points to Jesus. And so um, what is it about stories that I'm just sitting here watching the dad from This Is Us and I'm just weeping over this actor that I don't know? Like, what is it about stories that just draw you in? And when somebody jumps out from behind a corner in some horror movie, you're just like, you're right there. And you think about it all day, maybe more than your mom. It's not good. You know, you're thinking about Jack from This Is Us more than your own dad. Uh, why, why, why? Because they are brilliant, brilliant storytellers. And uh, we are wired for story. Uh, we are not wired for statistics. Statistics can change the, he- change the head, but stories change the heart. And so I just want to tell you as we go through this, this is a story, this is a, a, about reading scripture and about how the scripture in 1 Timothy 3 says it can transform us into wisdom uh, with Jesus. It, it, is, um, it is inerrant, it is God-breathed, and it can transform us into wisdom. It can, uh, it can equip us to, to be complete for the full good work that we were created for. And, uh, and isn't it God's wisdom that in 44% of the pages that we have in our hand are stories? Uh, and the rest of them are prose and poems that really just talk about the story in the first place. Why? Because stories, statistics can change our head, but stories can change our heart. And so um, uh, we are, we are um, in the second uh, section of the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, the first one is called the, the section of the Torah. Everybody say Torah. Torah is a fancy word for law or Pentateuch. The first five scrolls was the Pentateuch. And this is the section where everybody kind of gets lost. You know what I'm talking about? Like when you're driving out to California, there's probably some fun spots that you're recognizing and so forth. But once you get out into that Montana, Wyoming, you're just, where are we even? I want to encourage you guys that if you just give me a little attention today, we are actually going to go through uh, the history. Everybody say history, which is everything from Joshua through Esther and you're going to leave here today with basically the, the, the entirety of the rest of the Old Testament. If we pay attention today, we're going to be from Genesis all the way to Jesus. And I know that that sometimes is intimidating for us. A lot of times we get into a certain age where we're like, I can't admit that. I don't know who that person is. And then we just kind of don't ever learn or listen to it. But I'm telling you that everything out of the words of Jesus, Jesus rolls up the scroll when he enters the temple and he reads from Isaiah. He says, listen, everything you ever read in these pages were about me. I am the fulfillment of this story. And so we need to remember that when we're reading these scriptures, it's not just some boring thing about Samson or some guy that broke somebody with a jawbone. We're reading about Jesus. We're reading about an empty throne that Jesus had to fill. How many of you guys enjoyed worship this morning? I was kind of worked up. I wanted to sing the whole time too. Um, I am a bit of a mess. I have eight pages of notes today, and um, I just feel like he is wanting me to just share from my heart and, uh, and hopefully get to the notes as well. Um, but um, today is about the history of Israel is the history of the rise and fall of the kingdom of Israel. That is what the topic is. Um, we were made to be a kingdom of priests. That's what the Ten Commandments were all about. The I will promise is uh, a commitment from Yahweh God to partner with his people to be a nation that would uh, reveal blessing to the rest of all of the nations. And so the test, the history test, that goes from Joshua all the way through Esther is the story that chronicles the rise and fall of that vision, of that, um, of that pronouncement. When I, was, um, 
When I was uh, 16, um, you guys know I'm part of Flirt to Convert. I followed Kyra over to the youth group and um, came to the Lord quickly, uh, as you can tell, obviously, and easily. I mean, if, you know, he created her, right? And so, um, and so uh, I made my way to the Sunday morning service. There's about 10,000 people in this church, in Granger Community Church. And um, I've never, I mean, I think a lot of people have a bad taste in their mouth from church in general and maybe even big churches and mega church and things like that when things get a little bit too slick and a little bit too businessy, but I just never experienced that. Um, Granger Community Church had 10,000 people in it, um, but, but somewhere in the, in the atmosphere of that congregation was a vision and a clarity. You would go into this space, and as a 16-year-old boy, you knew that there was culture in the room. You knew that everything had meaning, everything mattered. You know that there wasn't, dis, there wasn't kind of lack of clarity. There wasn't a lack of value. There wasn't confusion. In a world where there's chaos, and every little Adam and Eve represents a little king in a kingdom, and everyone's competing for it, to come into a space at 16 years old and see clarity and confidence and care uh, is something pretty remarkable. So we couldn't show the video this morning. I wanted you to hear Mark's voice, because here's the thing. Mark Beeson is about six foot two. He's larger than life. He's got this laugh. He'd come up on Sunday morning, ha, 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 and he would just laugh. And there was just a sense of, of, of not arrogance, but a confidence that a 16-year-old boy would be interested in. And the thing about him is he had a PhD, but he talked like Mr. Rogers. Because how many of you guys know uh, leaders don't complicate, they clarify. They're, they're, they're helping a confused and complicated world come to clarity. And so I couldn't have told you, I'd never read the manual or the, or the handbook, but like GCC, I don't know what the words would be, but, but they, they lived in this space where everything, every resource could be used for God. And so there was no uh, resource or expense that was too high to give to him. So every chair and every audio cable and every tree and everything had purpose, had vision. And so GCC, they carried that vision and Mark, Mark clarified that vision all the time, all the time. Um, it was a place where you would hear stories of just broken families that had never been the dark in the doors of a church that would come in and find real hope, like not theology, not more doctrine, the hope of Jesus. And you would hear divorce, like people on the edge of divorce come back to marriage. You'd hear kids that were prodigals that would come home. Just simple, 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 simple gospel messages over and over again. And, and, it, and it, was, it, was, it was not about a business. It was about the kingdom of heaven. So size in the kingdom of heaven does not necessarily mean a lack of quality. A quantity is not a lack of quality. I think that's, that's a bit of a myth. And so leaders are, they're clarifying and they're narrating. I don't know if you've ever watched a, um, a sports uh, event with no uh, commentators. It's a little bit unnerving. You don't know what's going on. Uh, you realize what, why they get paid so much money because those, those people that are narrating the sport are helping you understand the sport. They're helping you go crazy when it's time to go crazy. They're helping you understand the point conversions. They're helping people that don't know about the sport, the rules. They're helping you understand the story behind it, why this point matters so much. And if you were to turn off the volume of the television, you're watching the same sport with a completely different understanding because commentators comment on sports the way that leaders give a narration of life. They're telling you what is good. They're reminding you of what's true. They are showing you what's important. Leaders are not telling you what to do so much as teaching you how to see. And where there's lack of vision, the people perish. But, but where there is a vision, where there's a clarity, there's just great power, there's great authority, I believe, in what the church is doing and what the family is doing. And so in the last 20 years, I don't really know where the direction with megachurches will go um, because we don't, 
trust leaders anymore. We, 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 we want to flatten the curve of leadership. Our generation is great at generosity. We're great at transparency. We're great at authenticity. We're not great at commitment. We're not great at submission. And we're not great at authority. And maybe for good reason. Because in the national spotlight and in, in the church, we've been burned by authority. Any authority that we don't know or at least have some kind of an accountability to them to us that we can't sort of put our hands around are a little bit elusive to us. And so we want to flatten the curve in some ways, I think. And maybe there's a healthy amount of mistrust. Maybe there was a pendulum of believing in some kind of, you know, savior figure person that we could call and we'd know their name and have their cell phone and we would know them face to face and so forth and they could lead us into the promised land. But maybe time after time after time, our history as well as Israel's history would show us that humanity is an empty throne for him. There is no king like him. There's no one that can replace him. But here's the tenuous reality of this. Genesis 1 we were created in his image, we were created to name the animals, and we were created to rule. So there is no world without leaders. Because in this room is 86 walking, talking, little leaders. We don't say kings and kingdoms, we say leaders and culture. And you are a leader, and you have culture everywhere you go. You are celebrating something, you are correcting something, and you are planning and prioritizing something. So I want you to think about the, the, the top five. Go ahead and take out your phone again. The top five people that are on your list, those are the last five conversations you had. And uh, uh, who's the guy? Craig, uh, I can't remember the guy's name from lifechurch.tv. Groeschel, leadership is what you celebrate, what you correct, and what you create. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose to you that you are a walking, talking representative, a ruler, who is a leader in your sphere. And those five conversations, whether you're talking about Clemson and the flea flicker, or you're talking about your wife and what you're getting for Christmas, there's something in there that's celebrated. Because we are not neutral, we are worshipers. And what we worship dictates the kingdom we create. And so there is no such thing as a leaderless society. You are a leader, and you are leading somewhere. Where are you leading people? The abdication of power and authority uh, would be uh, something that I think would be relieving to us in a postmodern age to not have somebody telling other people what to do. I think that that rubs us the wrong way, but it's a fallacy because if the church is not leading, then someone else is leading. And so what are we celebrating? What are we correcting? And what are we creating? You're going to have five conversations from here until your car, and you are leading someone somewhere. That is the culture question. At the end of the day, where are you leading them? All right, so 1 Samuel 8, 19 through 21 says this. The people refused to listen to Samuel. They said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations. With a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. Verse 21, when Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. A human king was not God's idea, it was man's idea. It was the desire to have somebody to be able to look to and be able to hold responsible to victories in the land. God uh, called his people to be a nation of priests. He called all of his people to prophesy. He called all of his people to enter up into the mountain. He called all of his people to lead. But all throughout the Old Testament, 
the people failed on this promise. And by the end of Moses' death, they are asking not for a prophet, but for a king. Humans want a brand. They want something to put their claim on. They want something to get credit for. They want something to control. They want, they, they want we, we are looking for guides and leaders in illegitimate ways to replace God because we can control people, but we can't control God. So the dysfunctional relationship is, I want to associate with that person, that brand, that idea, that human system, that building, that institution, because it can give me significance, not God. We're obsessed with brands. And we are not just not following anymore. We're following different things than we did in the 90s. We want our brand, and we want people, and we want a name and a face. We want to be able to call on somebody. And he's saying, that wasn't my idea. That was man's idea, to build a human kingdom. And we want them to fight our battles for us. We want Moses to go up the mountain to hear from God because we don't want to wait on him. And so we are insatious with our appetite to find people that can hear God on our behalf and fight battles that we were supposed to fight. They were never supposed to fight, and we were. And no leader can fight that battle for us. So he gives the people into this dysfunctional reality and says, have it your way for a couple couple hundred years. And that's what this map is all about. So we'll begin with Joshua. And so um, Joshua's responsibility is to go into the promised land that Moses was not allowed to enter. Even Moses was a failed character. He struck the rock twice. He was not slow to anger like Yahweh, but quick to anger. His character was revealed, and he died before he entered the promised land. So Joshua's responsibility was to enter the promised land and take possession of it. The land was promised to to the people to be a place for the kingdom of priests to live. Now here's where the setup is everything we need to understand about this story. In the land are all the ites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Jebusites, the ites, the ites, the ites, the ites. And you might think to yourself, if you're reading this scripture Monday and you get into Joshua or Judges, Lord, isn't there somewhere in Simpsonville that we could just live with a little bit less ites there? Like, wouldn't that be great? Like, why did you have to just be so cantankerous that you got to go ahead and put your people in the middle of all these backwards, you know, defiling, child-sacrificing, raping, pillaging barbarians. Like, couldn't we live in Simpsonville? Like, wouldn't that be a better idea? And we're going to read in the passage. I'll read it to you in a minute. He didn't put them with the ites on accident. Because the ites, as enemies, keep them accountable to be intimate with God. It was not an accident that he put them, and he said... You are not winning until you root yourself in the land in the middle of enemies. He wants them in a place with enemies because enemies hold them accountable. Because if you don't have enemies, you don't need Jesus. And the tendency for humans is to run towards comfort, but comfort is where idols live. So he puts you with enemies so you will worship him and not an idol. It's not on accident that your boat's shaking because he, needs, he wants you looking to a Messiah bigger than the wave. He puts you in the middle of the wave so you could see Jesus was bigger than it. Your enemy in that way is a bit of a friend. It holds you accountable. It holds your feet to the fire. So Justin and Dana are at the house yesterday and we're in COVID and so we got our first bout of homeschooling. And so Kyra's wise. You need a wise woman. And ask good questions. Wise people are not talking, they're asking questions. 
That's what I know. Uh, she says uh, to Justin and Dana, let's just jump right in. Y'all are homeschooling. Our kids are in homeschool. What do we need to know about homeschooling? And they'll tell you. I mean, you can bring them up here for testimony time. Like, they loved homeschooling. You know, we got one of them, Pastor Dad, and uh, you get high care, and, and you get close accountability, and your teacher knows your learning style and stuff like that. And the only advice, correct me if I'm wrong, Justin, he said this, if you're homeschooling, what you want is your kid needs to be out of the house making other kind of relationships that is not youth group. Did I get that right? Youth group does not count. And here's what I, here's what I hear from him, what he's saying. The reason why youth group doesn't count is because in youth group, there's an adult that's in control. But the business world doesn't have one person in control. The medical world doesn't have one person in control. The education system certainly doesn't have one person in control. The education system is chaos, and that's where the kingdom's going. So the problem is, is that if we huddle in the bubble, we'll never get to the land. The promise is in the chaos. The promise is in the motel. The promise is in the classroom. And the kingdom's not in here, it's out there. That's where we get made informed. That's where we find the promise. And as long as it's just about Kiwanis and the small group club, we will never get it. And that's why the American church is, is anemic compared to China. Because blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those that have enemies. Blessed that have to stand for their faith. Blessed are those that can walk into a chaotic environment with no particular leader and bring the kingdom there. That's the kingdom of heaven. So the story of Joshua is a test. This is the verse. He did it on purpose. He wasn't even sneaky about it. He overtly says in Judges 3 and in many other places, these are the nations the Lord left to the test. All those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars. Hey, you're not just a gardener, you're a fighter. Until we're up there, we are warriors in the kingdom of heaven. We're not pacifists in the spiritual sense. So he says, if you haven't experienced any wars, you're not ready for the kingdom of heaven yet. Because the kingdom clashes with chaos. It doesn't go, go into comfort. Verse 2, he did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. Verse 3, the five rulers, the Ites, the Philistines, the Canaanites, the Sidonians, the Hivites, and, the Leb and those living in Lebanon mountains from Mount Baal, Hermon of Lebo, uh, Hamath, verse 4, they were left to test. God left them there to test the Israelites to see who they would obey, which he had given, the, if they would obey the commandments which he had given to the ancestors of Moses. So this is the setup. We don't, we don't live in Canaan. Our promise is not Canaan. Our promise is disciples. So we are measuring our worship, not just by Bible time, but by disciples made, by kingdom advanced, by kingdom moving into chaos in a place where the adults are not in control. How many of you guys work in a place where one person is not in control? That's where he's going. That is exactly where the kingdom of heaven is moving and advancing quickly. So reading tip, we're in a reading scripture thing, and it's, reading scripture is about observation, interpretation, and application, and I want to hit that middle section with some of these reading tips. We're on number four, because last week we went through one through three, but when you read, you are reading for the covenant and then for the consequence, and so you're going to see people do all kinds of different actions and unique little weird things that can get you lost sometimes, like why did he get tied up by a braid, and what's the symbol of that, and what's the meaning of you know, this job owner, whatever. It's like, he, we're, not, we're not paying attention to the consequence so much as the covenant first, is did the person follow the covenant? And so this is the covenant report card. This is the kingdom report card. And it lines up well with the celebrate, correct, and create uh, 
motif that I brought up earlier, and this is it. So every king and every judge, when you go ahead and read anywhere from Josh's to Judges to Samuel to Kings, the test of the worshiper is not how many are in the army and not how well they strategize. The test is worship or idolatry, covenant or convenience. So they're going to go in and it's going to be convenient to take all the Philistines' gold and melt it down. It's going to be convenient to keep some of the wives around. It's going to be convenient to, you know... um, cooperate with their culture and partner. And it's convenient, a big no-no if you ever see a king do this. This is the thing is they're not going to be like, it wasn't a good idea that they counted the number of soldiers. Like they're not, they're not going to do that because you're supposed to know the covenant. And so it's, it's, it's convenient to count the number of soldiers that you have before you go into battle, right? He said, no, 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 no. You're not going to trust in the number of soldiers. You're going to trust in me. And out of that is going to flow a kingdom of, um, a kingdom of priests or a kingdom of chaos, and so this is the natural built-in accountability. One victory at Jericho and one loss at Ai from the very beginning is going to show the template for the rest of the story all the way throughout is that if the people were to trust in God, to worship instead of bring up idols, to obey the covenant and measure success by faithfulness and not by fruitfulness, at least immediately, if they trust, they get the land, but if they take it, they'll die, be defeated, or driven into exile. And so they, they have a, a victory in Jericho because they trust God and they have a loss at Ai right at the beginning because one of them goes and steals some of the Philistine uh, money at the very beginning. And so this is the, the test that's, that's, that's set up uh, over time. All right, so we can take this report card of celebration and correction and creation and we can see and measure the judges. The judges, the book of Judges, it's not like gavels and Judge Judy, it's like, these little chieftains, these little small leaders that God set up to try and deliver them out of uh, their enemy's grip. And so uh, you'll kind of give them A's, B's, and C's, and D's, and F's. Uh, I don't think any of them really get A's. Uh, Apparently, Deborah has a homegirl that just sliced one of these Canaanites in the head with a tent peg, uh, and it gets real interesting really quickly. Um, But she is uh, uncompromising with the idolatry and the barbarianism and the paganism uh, that goes on in the land. And so uh, we are to see Deborah as a faithful judge. You got a, a guy like Gideon who's pretty okay. And uh, he goes ahead and, um, you know, he puts out that fleece. Uh, he has a dream. Uh, he moves in with less and less men. It kind of goes down from a couple thousand into 300. And he moves in and has victory over uh, his enemies. And so he's kind of in the middle category. And in the very bottom, uh, you got Samson, who is just womanizing and bragging about himself and singing his own songs, and then he like pulls down these two pillars, and this whole auditorium kills 3,000 people, including himself. Uh, and so these are pictures of um, not perfect people. The Spirit of God says it rests heavily on each of these people, but just because the Spirit of God rests on a person does not mean necessarily that they're following him, at least in the age of judges. And it says in the age of judges, there were no kings, and everyone was wise in their own eyes. And so what you have in the judges is a cycle a cycle that we oftentimes get caught in. It's a cycle that starts with sin and idolatry. It moves into being oppressed. He hands them over to their enemies. And then uh, there's repentance. Because when it is that the house is on fire, we're often more and more likely to repent. And so after that comes, um, comes a period of, of redemption where God will come in and heal the people um, and then they'll uh, experience peace and then they'll kind of get back to their business of tomfoolery. And so I've heard it said this way in a recent quote, I like this quote, is that uh, uh, strong men make good times, uh, good times make weak men, 
Weak men make bad times. Bad times make strong men. And that is the cycle that continually perpetuates over and over again in the judges. And so the picture here in the book of Judges is that the Israelites, in their faithfulness, were to move in and make no compromise with the neighboring nations. Um, And oftentimes, I think if you're in sports, maybe you could testify to this, is that when we're playing defense and when we are trying not to get hurt, we oftentimes hurt ourselves the most. The kingdom of heaven is not defense. It is advancement. It is moving forward. And it is uh, not settling simply for compromise. Um, And so, uh, so we move on to the book of Ruth. All right, so the book of Ruth and the book of Esther are both kind of smaller, zoomed-in pictures of everyday life. And in both of these cases, you won't see uh, the voice of God in any of the lines of these passages. You'll just see his hand, which leads us to a very quick but simple tip. Tip number five is to read for God's hand between the lines. And so if, uh, if you've ever read the book of Ruth, Ruth actually is a Moabite. She's one of the enemy uh, people that ends up moving in and uh, marrying Boaz, a kinsman redeemer, as she is faithful to follow um, Naomi. And out of this faithfulness, out of trusting God, um, God is not for enemies or for Israel. He is for himself and for his covenant redemptive purposes. As she trusts God, Enemies or friends that would learn to turn and trust God could be included in the family. And so when we flip over to Matthew and you see the genealogy of Jesus as the line of the the human moves its way to go and step on the head of the snake, uh, we have Boaz, which is um, Ruth's husband, and uh, their son Obed is connected to David, which is the kingly line. And so the rule of thumb is there are passages in Scripture in the beginning of Genesis, for example, uh, when um, he's creating things, when Abraham is called at the beginning of the, of the Moses narrative, where God is talking a lot. And that is a time when we are to be paying attention to the character of God. That is an incredible way to understand who God is. But there are large volumes of Scripture where God is not talking. And when we see people do things, for better or for worse, we are not to judge them necessarily by their immediate success or failure, but by the covenant. And in between the lines, we are supposed to be looking for the hand of God, because even, even when God is not speaking, he is always working. And so that is one of the things that we get out of the book of Ruth. Now, if there's a major um, kind of feature of what this entire section from Joshua all the way to Esther is all about. It is in this book of Samuel, if you want to get the major uh, sweep here. So the book of Samuel um, starts off with, as I read before, the people crying out for a king. And Samuel has a bunch of bum sons who go and rob um, a bunch of sacrifices. Samuel is a priest um, uh, in, um, in, in the temple. And, um, and so he's speaking to God because he doesn't have anyone to rule and lead. The people are crying out for a king. And so Samuel finds this guy, Saul. Now, I don't know if you guys have ever been on a date before or met somebody for the first time, but they're not necessarily doing anything wrong, but just something ain't right. You know what I'm talking about? Like, they just yell a little bit louder at their mom than you're comfortable with, and you're like, you didn't really break the rules, but just something ain't right. So... The scripture takes advantage of this. And by the way, I want to let you know, as you read these scriptures, like these, I think we think these uh, authors are cavemen, and they're not. They're geniuses. And they're leaving out details on purpose. The peer writers and literatures of that day are very understanding of how to include details and fill in the gaps that our mind went filled in. But they don't tell you why Cain's jealous. And they don't tell you why, um, you know, Abraham has taken his son up the hill. They just let you think about it. They just leave it as a gap for your imagination, the way that Alfred Hitchcock would, would design a movie, for you to just wonder what that is, meditate on it, and then as you see the story play out, realize what that gap was for, and then test your assumptions against themselves to see whether or not your assumptions were right. I mean, they are geniuses. This thing is a literary 
uh, masterpiece, obviously, let alone a divine work that is here to change us into wisdom of Jesus. But you got Saul, and I'm just going to go through. There's a couple of just, uh, not sure where you're going with this one, Saul. So, uh, of course, David, you know, he's like tending to his father's sheep out there when he's called. So it's this like really humble thing of this meek shepherd. Saul is a bit of a doofenshmirf. We find Saul looking for his like lost donkey, which just makes you wonder, how did you lose your dad's donkey? Like, if you're not keeping track of the donkey, I don't know how you're going to do with Israel. But he's like, he figures out that there's a seer, which is a prophet in Samuel, and he's like... I got like 50 cents on me. Maybe I'll just pay this prophet uh, 50 cents and see if he can find my donkey. And you're like, I don't know if I want this guy ruling the kingdom, but here we go. Um, He's doing that. Uh, Next thing you know, um, he gets anointed as king. People are going crazy for him. Uh, This guy, Nahas, this enemy, says that he's going to go into the Israelite camp and stab everybody's eyes out. And you're like, okay, now it's time to return. And so he does. But it's like the very first instinct, I don't know if you've ever seen this when you're meeting somebody for the very first time, and just before you really want to see it, it says that the anger burned inside of his heart. The first way that he begins to rule is out of this anger. And the Lord gets angry, and Moses gets angry, and we want to kind of create a little bit of an excuse and a little bit of a buffer zone for us, for us and we kind of keep on reading. The next thing you know, um, he's coming into a town, and he's like uh, got food, but he's got not got enough, so he feeds himself, and he doesn't feed the soldiers. It's like, it's not breaking the law. I mean, he's, he's a king. It doesn't break the covenant, but it's kind of like you're wanting more. Uh, it, it says that he is, um, he's the only one with weapons in his army, and there's other people that, that have weapons. He tells his army that until my enemies are defeated, uh, nobody gets to eat. But then his son eats, and then he says he's going to kill his son, and then he backtracks on that. So just kind of like, a, there's, like there's not broken rules here, but something ain't right. And I think maybe the scripture would visit us today to say something along the lines of this is like, um, you don't have to be humble to be successful and to follow the rules. And there's people that as things get going, there's such a train of success and there's such a train of um, popularity that begin to, to flow and follow whatever this organization and person is. And when we look for human kingdoms rather than the heavenly kingdoms, we'll be intoxicated by them. We will begin to follow them. But I think the scripture would say to trust your instincts. David kind of comes along and he's like, he's like doing all the things that you are wanting a king to do. Instead of hoarding food, he's giving food to other people. He's feeding the soldiers. He's taking care of sheep. Um, he is defeating Goliath only when Goliath antagonized him. Uh, Saul begins to like chase him down. And on many occasions, uh, he has opportunity to kill Saul, who is his enemy, and he lets him go. And he even challenges this guy that was supposed to protect Saul uh, when he got too close to him and told him, how come he didn't kill me? There's just this humility that kind of begins to fall on David's life. And so this is kind of uh, the picture here of the difference between the kingdom of me versus the kingdom of him. And the reality is when we read passages like this, they are mirrors. They're meant to be unresolved, and you never see God say, be like this or be like that. You're supposed to read it, and it reveals your heart. It it causes you to remember back to the covenant of what is most important to be celebrated, what's most important to be corrected, and what's most important to be created. And if we do it the right way, I think the scripture would tell us there's a little bit of David in us, but there's also a little bit of Saul. And the most harmful thing that could happen to a person independently is to lift up an idol, but the most harmful thing that could happen to their culture and kingdom around them is that they would lift up an idol, especially the idol of me. So I get into college, and I'm going to be a great teacher. I saw some Apple commercial. He had on a skinny tie, and all the kids loved him, and he had a slick little MacBook, and I'm like, I'm not going to be like that 
doofenshmirf, you know, Mr. Casper or whatever that taught me in high school. I'm going to be so fun and just interesting, and it's going to be great, and I'm going to turn the entire school system around. And uh, you get in there, and they just do not care what you look like. I mean, they could care less about, because they're, they they're thinking about what they have on. They're not interested in you. And so you run into all sorts of problems, and it doesn't matter how slick your little thing is. It doesn't matter. They are students that are waiting for teachers to care about them. They want teachers to remember their name, to listen to them, to love them, and to teach them. And so from year one to year seven, there was a lot of heartache, a lot of sleepless nights, um, a lot of stress, and life beat me down in the best of ways. My enemies beat me down in the best of ways until it was no longer about me, until it was about him and about them. So quick list that we might reflect on, and I want you to think about this. Slight difference, but there is a slight difference between being a teacher and teaching. There's a slight difference between I'm going to go to J. Crew and be a killer teacher you've never known before and forgetting myself so I can actually teach a kid. There's a slight difference between father, being a father and fathering. There's a slight difference of being the perfect mother with the perfect Instagram and posing everybody the right way so that there's this fulfilled vision of being a great mother versus actually just losing yourself to mothering. There's a difference between being a great mentor and mentoring. There's a great difference between being a doctor and actually treating patients. There's a little bit of Saul in all of us. And our enemies are here to hold us accountable. The idol, the idols of the culture and the idols of me, that I would not, not just not get defeated by Egypt, but not become Egypt, to become a kind of an idol. And so there is a difference between being a leader and leading and being a host and hosting and being a church, being a church that is trying to build a church or a church that's here to reach a city. That's two different things. A church that's here to build a program versus a church that's here to surrender, die to the dream to become uh, a salt and light for the city. It's two different things. It's a slight difference. And so this is the covenant, the great hope that we find, because even David fails. Even David becomes like a Saul. He sins with Bathsheba. He has Uriah killed uh, because of his sin. Nathan the prophet has to call him on his laundry. And then because of that, because of that sin, because of that idolatry, everyone suffered, the whole kingdom. There is no independent idolatry. Every idol, every idol in every community rubs off on everybody else. And so uh, this idol causes the downfall of all of the kingdom. And so David is, uh, before all of his sin, is in prayer. And uh, this is kind of where I want you to, to, to fixate and focus the bullseye of this entire segment here. As we come into the land to uh, remove enemies and to move forward to see an invisible kingdom extended, this is the covenant. This is the fourth covenant. The first covenant is the Noahic covenant. The second one is, is Abraham. Noah's rainbow says that uh, God will never come and judge the world with a flood. The second covenant is Abraham. God promises to bring a blessing uh, to the nations through Abraham. The third covenant is, covenant is Moses, and that's actually conditional. Like the land is conditional, and Moses is saying, if you don't follow the covenant, you will not have the land. If you do not trust, you will not have the land. If you try and take, you will become like an exile, or you will be defeated by your enemies. So that's a conditional. It is a bilateral conditional covenant. But this, we are back to the I will, unilateral, unconditional covenant, covenant of David. And this is how it goes down. Uh, this is uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, 5-16. through 16. Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? 
I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. So David gets before the Lord. I love you. How are you going to live in a tent when I live in a cedar house? I want you to have a human-built uh, temple that you can live in. And God says, that's not my idea. I didn't come to build the kingdom for human hands. I came to build it from heaven. But I'll follow you in your train of thought because I'm a partner and I, will, and I will interact with you. I will let you have your way and discover it's wrong if that's what needs to happen. I have been moving from place to place in this tent for my entire dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of these rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people, why am I not in a house of cedar? As if I need something built by human hands to exist? Verse 8, now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over the people of Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies before you. I did it. I did it. Worship was the warfare. I was the one that won the victory, not you. And the victory wasn't because of numbers. It was because of trust. And I am the one that's going to move forward the kingdom of heaven, not you. I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men on the earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they will have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed in the land. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. This prophecy, verse 13, he is the one who will build a house for my name. It's not going to have a brand on it. You can't commodify it. We as humans, we want to package it so we can sell it, so we can get credit, so we can build up our name. But he says, I'm I'm not going to establish a kingdom for your name. I'm going to establish it for mine. And I will establish the throne of this kingdom forever. And I, I will be his father. He will be my son. And when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggers inflicted by human hands. He that knew no sin became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He did no wrong, but he was punished. Why was he punished? Because God is cruel? Because God is fickle? He was punished because of us. God is cruel if he killed the son if we're not sinners, right? So he had to, he had to punish us for what we deserved, not what he deserved. And so he says right there, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggers inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from you before. I want to tell you, we've never seen a king like him before. We've never seen a ruler like him before. He's not going to cheat with his intern in the office. He's not going to look over a poor person on the side of the road. He's not going to put his arrogance above helping his people. He's a shepherd. He's not a, he's not a ruler or a dictator. He's not an empire. He frees people. He doesn't enslave people. He is good news of great joy for all people. He's a king like we've never seen before. He's an everlasting king with an everlasting kingdom. And so he says to David, I'm building a kingdom, but it's not going to be built by human hands. It's not going to be on the stock market. It's not going to have a name or a face on it. And I don't need your walls, and I don't need your programs, and I don't need your small groups. I need your trust. I will win the victory for you, and I will establish a kingdom, a counselor. The government will be on my shoulders, mighty counselor, great king. This is the one that I'm coming to bring, a king that will have no end to it. It will not be made by human hands. It will be an everlasting kingdom. And it won't just be for Greenville, South Carolina, or for Israel. It will be for the nations, once and for all. That we would have a king that this, this, this world cries out for, that it desires. And so Israel, the moral of the story, was an empty throne for Jesus. It pointed to Jesus, and it pointed its need for Jesus. And so the story continues, and a couple more kings have a crack at it. Solomon starts off good, builds a temple, but then becomes more like Egypt 
than Israel or like the Lord that called him. And so that's why I have a green for the beginning of his name, but the end of his name spirals downward. Because of David's sin, the entire kingdom is split between northern and southern tribes. And on the report card, eight of them in the south are pretty good, but not good enough. Zero out of 20 from the north are good. They all receive Fs. And so out of the total, zero out of 32. We'll read in a couple weeks about the prophets. The prophets weren't so much about predicting the future. They were calling the kings back to the covenant. And there was always a tension between the kings and the prophets because the prophets told the kings what they didn't want to hear. And the prophets were the lawyers, the watchdogs for the covenant. And they demanded and they held them accountable to that report card. Are you celebrating him or idols? Are you correcting towards the covenant or your own convenience? Are you creating chaos? Are you creating the kingdom that was promised? This is what the prophets came to do. And Jesus came, and he was the only one that could actually be the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. He's the only one that had the power to do something and knew what to do about it. He's the only perfect king to establish a perfect kingdom. And so the failure of these kings lead to this prophets that are crying out this, this, this warning that is going to ultimately lead into exile. And so the rise and fall of the kingdom of Israel becomes an empty throne for Jesus. That the hopes, the hopes of Israel was, was put on the hands of people, on, on images that they could put their hands on, and, and idols that, that looked like the other nations. And, and they cried out for God for this human kingdom, and God said, I'm not going to dwell in a tent. I'm going to win victories through your, through your trust. You're going to be a, you're going to be a, a, a holy priesthood, a royal uh, priesthood that is going to go to the nations that all would prophesy, that all would know me, that all would trust me, that all would call on me, and, and, that, and, that, and that there would be an everlasting kingdom that would never be defeated, established here on the earth. And so after the Babylonian exile, which we'll talk about next week, um, there's a couple of prophetic books here. Chronicles is going to list out all of the um, stories of David without any of his negative um, failures. And it's going to be a very hopeful book that sort of points towards the, the faithfulness of God through the King David, who was the, the highest king or the best king Israel ever saw, and point to if he's done it in David, wouldn't he do it again? And reminds us back to that covenant. Ezra and Nehemiah come out of exile. Cyrus politically frees them, but spiritually they're still locked up. And so there's a revival where they rebuild the temple walls, but ultimately they uh, abhor the Sabbath. They don't follow the Lord. They don't follow the covenant. And we are cast again to the covenant that needs to be written on our hearts and not uh, by the hands of men. Esther is a beautiful story of what it's like to live in the nations and trust God and not compromise. There's great compromise that happens both for Mordecai and, and Esther, but ultimately God provides for his people between the lines of the pages. And so this is what Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7 says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We've never known a king like him. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time and on forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. So my buddy Skyler's in small group, and uh, he's two for two for the old pastor story. Some guys are just telling great preachable stories, so uh, it's good for him. I guess I need to know him. Uh, he's talking about a youth leader. Um, I guess I talk about the Enneagram too much. Eight on the Enneagram. Tough gal, real tough, just kind of a... A bull in a china shop, you need that in the kingdom of God. You need a Peter for every John, you know? You've got to have some people that are ready to fight. And so uh, the lady sharing her testimony breaks down into tears. She said she was uh, walking the streets. She was unbelieving, non-believing household. She's in New York uh, doing whatever on vacation. And one of these street preachers comes up to her and just will not let her go, just preaching at her, preaching the gospel. Get out of my face. Get that stupid, get, yeah, that stupid backwards religious stuff. I don't want to hear any of it. 
She goes back to the hotel. She can't sleep. It sticks with her. The word of God does not return void, and the people need to hear gospel oftentimes seven times before they even remember it, let alone receive it. And some sow, and some reap, and some water. So she can't sleep that night or the next night, and maybe the next night after that, and then 15 years later, she thinks back on that conversation and gives her life to Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is not built by hands, and that's really inconvenient for us because we want to measure it by the stock market. We want to put it in a package, but it will not fit in a package. It only fits in trust. So our job is not to win. Our job is not to be organized necessarily. Our job ultimately is not to get efficiency done. It's to trust. He's the one that wins the victory. And when we kind of consolidate it and bubble it, we ruin it. We ruin it. We don't just ruin it for them. We ruin it for us. And we become pathetic shells of what the kingdom of heaven was supposed to be. It was never meant to hide in the corner. It was meant to advance into chaos. And there is no neutrality. There's no 50-50 part, you know, um, compromising with the world and with darkness. The kingdom is advancing or it's not at all. So that's the decision before us. Like, we can't live in the bubble. We have to, we, like, the call is an everlasting kingdom for all of the nations, not for this, just for this room. And if we are not advancing, we are not following the king. There's no two ways, there's no two ways about it. And so, for all of us that have had difficult situations with human leaders, um, for all of us that have had wonderful human leaders and parents and coaches, the good news is, is no matter how much we fail, and how many times we don't celebrate the right thing or correct the right thing and we're not bold and we choose convenience over covenant. The words of Jesus in Matthew 28 will give us great consolation this morning. Listen, all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to Jesus. If there's 7 billion people on this earth that wake up and tell a lie, Jesus tells the truth and they're all wrong. If Mark Beeson, who led Granger Community Church for 20 years faithfully, said something that he didn't agree with, that Jesus didn't agree with, Mark Beeson's wrong, Jesus is right. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We are seven billion little kings and queens, and we get to decide what we're going to celebrate and correct and create, but ultimately, he's the only one that has the authority to decide the kingdom that is established. So I'll close with this passage, and we'll get an um, intentional question up. Um, Timothy, come on forward. Acts 2, 42 gives us a vision for what this priesthood would look like. The fulfillment of a celebrating culture that celebrates the kingdom, that corrects towards the kingdom, that creates towards the kingdom, that inquires of the Lord, that doesn't prop up idols and doesn't, doesn't lean towards convenience, but leans towards covenant, the true promise of the everlasting king that has no end. This is what it looks like. It is a nation of priests. Acts says that these people are regular, ordinary men who devoted themselves and women to the apostles' teaching. Each of them, not to a, not to a prophet or some intermediate truth-teller or seer, to the Lord himself, by the apostles' teachings, and to fellowship, and the breaking of bread, and to prayer. It says that everyone, there wasn't one fire in the middle of the thing that was a bonfire that everybody's putting their marshmallow into, everyone had a Holy Spirit flame above their head. Because everyone was filled with the Spirit, and they were filled with awe and wonder of the many signs and wonders that were performed by the apostles. One of the reasons I think we don't see signs and wonders in the church is because we're not out there. I think we'd have to depend on them out there if we were out there. That's, that's, this, is, this is reality. He's, he's not filling us for us. He's filling us for others. There'd be a kingdom that would advance and know no end. It would be established for eternity. 
that all the believers were together and they had everyone in common. You notice there's no name or face on this. There's no WWW at sign anywhere in this. It's people trusting Jesus. That's the vision. It's that simple. It's people, people, regular, ordinary people that do not have enough to win any of these victories, winning victories through worship, through trust, through casting out idols. What is the number two thing? I know that we all know that God's first, but what's the number two thing? What is the number two thing in your life? And then ask yourself this question, is it really number two? Because the only loss, the only loss we ever have is idolatry. Victory is only always in trust and idolatry always leads to exile and defeat. They sold their property as though it was on fire. They sold their property and possessions to get rid of it to anyone who had need that it would not come and make an idol in their heart and cause defeat and dismay for them or for their family. But they cast aside their property and possessions. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their numbers, establishing the land, establishing the promise, a great nation, a great name with great blessing. The kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe the good news. He added daily to those that were being saved. Let's all stand and we're just gonna... uh, do what we're talking about this morning and just worship. We just worship you right now. We thank you that the scriptures have come to point us a clear and clairvoyant message. You have not left us confused, but you have come to lead and you have come to authorize. And uh, and so Jesus, you are enough. Your authority and your word and your power is enough. And God, that we would not build something with human hands and lose our life by trying to keep it, but rather we would gain it all by trusting you with it. And so we thank you that you are a coming king and you're a king like no other. We trust you to be our king, to establish kingdom, a rule and a reign that would draw many, many nations to you. And and so, Father, would you spoil our plans? God, even right now, spoil our plans for you that we would not waste what's eternal for something that is finite, something that's meant to be for the nations to be something that's just for my living room. No, Lord, that we would turn early and often and cast down our idols that we might see victory in you. Our worship is warfare. And so we trust you, God, that you would deliver us into the kingdom and advance into the nations. This is your promise, and we trust that it's happening as we follow you. In Jesus' name, everybody said. Thanks again for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please give us feedback by leaving a comment on this podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc.